Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 333, The Arguments of God's Death. The Unitarian Christian Alliance podcast is hosted by UCA board member Mark Kane. This is a brilliantly produced podcast which is unapologetically by, for, and about Unitarian Christians. It's one of the very few podcasts I never ever miss a single episode of, and I recommend that you run over and subscribe right now using the podcast software of your choice. If you're the kind of person who listens to podcasts through a web browser, then just go to UnitarianChristianAlliance.org and click on the link for podcast, and you'll see all the episodes right there available to you. The UCA podcast is carrying out crucial parts of the mission of the Unitarian Christian Alliance, namely networking and fostering fellowship and mutual understanding between different sorts of Unitarian Christians. Now, normally, the host is a gracious and curious interviewer who draws out his guests to share their spiritual journeys with the rest of us. And yet, Mark Cain's creativity and his impish sense of humor can't always be contained. Now and again, the host does reflect on Unitarian-Trinitarian disagreements. So in episode 19, titled Credibility and God's Death, I thought he did this to brilliant effect offering some powerful arguments for a Unitarian understanding of the New Testament in comedy form. Deep into this episode, Cain presents a little historical drama about how the apostles would have reacted if they thought that God had been crucified on that fateful day. And we're invited to contrast what he presents with how they actually reacted according to the New Testament. As you're listening to this short piece, which you'll hear in a minute, you should ask yourself, what arguments about biblical interpretation is this drama presenting? As I'll explain after you hear it, I think he's making some powerful arguments here. Behind the humor, there is important and sober reasoning about understanding the New Testament. So with his permission, I'm going to play it for you now. But let me first say, if you're at a computer right now, I advise pausing this episode and looking at the video version, which has just been posted on the UCA's YouTube channel. Mark and his mother have turned this little drama into a Sunday school-style puppet show, making it even more hilarious. I've put the link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Okay, so if you're still here for the audio-only version, let's give it a listen. John enters the room where the rest of the disciples are broken and bereft. He approaches Matthew. Ah, here you all are. Hmm, as expected. What did you say, John? No, no, I get it, Matthew. You guys think literally all hope is lost. Yeah, what sort of Messiah is a dead one? What are you talking about? And why aren't you at all distressed? Oh, well, nah, it's complicated. No, John, go ahead. 
Spit it out. Well, uh, okay. Listen, Jesus took me aside a few days ago, and he let me in on something. Oh? Today, that was Yahweh on the cross. Uh, did you hear me? Oh, yeah, John. Uh, we heard you. Are you done now? We were kind of preoccupied. Well, believe me, I was as perplexed then as you guys are now. And I'm still trying to figure out how exactly it worked. Dude, man, go take your nonsense somewhere else. Thomas, I'm not kidding. That was Yahweh, the creator of the universe, up on that cross. They killed God? Yeah, I doubt that. Well, Thomas, yes and no. John, really? See, Matthew, it was Yahweh on the cross, and they killed him. Right. But not exactly. They killed his human nature. Oh, well then, thank you, John. That clears it up. You know, I, uh, I kind of expected the first nail to unleash a flood of unapproachable light from within his being and melt the Romans like in that scene from Indiana Jones. Man, what? Are you in some strange and new sixth stage of grief? Like, like where you deal with your sorrow by formulating doctrinal mysteries which are both incomprehensible yet somehow essential to a saving faith? Yeah, John, you aren't making sense. They killed Yahweh, the ultimate power of the universe, with some nails and a spear. I know, right? Isn't it amazing? It's downright lunacy is what it is. Well, it seemed odd when Jesus told me, but now that it's happened... Oh, oh, I don't know. He said it would not make much sense to you. Oh, please, do tell, John. All right, all right. What we just saw die was an impersonal human nature. A body. God's flesh container. Oh, yeah. Now you're talking sense. Wait a minute. You mean... Yahweh's human body died. Yeah, so Yahweh is not dead? Matthew, what kind of question is that? Of course Yahweh's not dead. Are you even listening to me? Y you're the one who said they killed God today. Exactly. God had to die to save us. Isn't that amazing? But he's not dead? Of course not. What kind of God do you think we have? I said he died. Not that he's dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. You got something real special going on up there in your head. Thomas, hush now. This may be exceptionally good news. See, Thomas, if you were just a better listener. So, John, Jesus is not actually dead? Uh, uh, careful now. Jesus clearly died today, in a manner of speaking. In what manner? You might say God tasted death today as to his human nature. So is God dead or not? No, God's not dead. He merely died. Then, oh, wait. This may be really good news. What are you getting at, Matthew? No, listen, Thomas. Clearly an eternal and immortal God being estranged from his, his flesh compartment albeit rather violently. It isn't all that bad. I mean, God had been without an impersonal human nature for literally thousands of years, and we've all been fine. You see, Matthew? Pretty cool, huh? So why are we all so downcast? God died for us, and he's not actually dead. 
Well, hold on, eager beaver. We're not to the happy part yet. His body is still dead. Man, you're making my head hurt. John, what does that mean? It it means that we have no hope yet. Uh, John, God has redeemed us himself by personally coming to earth in a human nature and getting his body killed and is actually still alive. Why do we have no hope? Because if God doesn't reacquire his impersonal human nature, we are of all people most to be pitied. And that makes a difference how? Because without re-entering his body, well, we, we, we can't be sure that we'll rise from the dead someday. So taking on a human nature as a baby wasn't it. He has to do it again as an adult? And only then we have hope? Yeah, Thomas makes a point there, John. If God living as a human is all we need for hope, then we're good. He's already proven he can do it. Um, well, I'm pretty sure he has to be retabernacled into a body that was killed. Wait, John, wait. Isn't it more amazing that he did that in the first place, starting from nothing but a zygote 30 years ago? That's more impressive than him doing it again with a fully formed body that's, well, just waiting for him a mile up the road in a tomb. Matthew, listen. This is how it's just supposed to be. We grieve now because God is no longer in possession of his human nature, and without that, we have no hope. It's just the way it is. Don't think about it so hard. Mm, I don't know, John. This is all making my head swim. The soldiers today killed Yahweh Oh, just saying that out loud sounds, sounds ridiculous. And so Yahweh died? Tasted death, but yeah. Right, tasted it. But he's not actually dead, so great news, of course. Yet we are terribly grieved because his body is still dead. You're getting it. Whoa, whoa, Matthew, what are you doing? Oh, John, I'm, I'm taking notes. I've got a lot more questions here and I have to get this straight. Oh, no, no, no. Put the pencil down, Matthew. I haven't told you the best part. You won't have to explain any of this. Okay. Jesus told me the whole plan. See, he knows we can't explain this. You won't ever have to utter the words, God died. Huh, John. Well, that's good, I guess. Can you imagine the looks I'd get at the synagogue if I stood up and told them that someone could kill God? (laughs) Yeah, Matthew, I doubt your credibility would survive that. Well, well, listen, he gave me some talking points. I I wrote them down. Here. We'll say things like this. He was a man attested to you by God with signs and wonders that God did through him. See? So wait, John... We just call him a man when he's actually Yahweh? Are you trying to trick me? Not at all. Think about it. He is entirely man because he, he, he is totally man. And he's Yahweh entirely. Wait, so he's man and God at the same time? (laughs) Yeah, the way he took on that impersonal human nature was, was rather special. He really was man entirely. And God, right? Yes, entirely. See how confounding that sounds? Uh, yes, John. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
pencil down, Matthew. These particulars are not so much worth our trouble. They won't even be real problems for believers until three or four hundred years from now, long past our time here. Okay, John, so I can just talk like he's a man and not worry about the rest? Exactly. And I won't ever have to use the words, God died? Nope, none of you will. Oh, very good. But, John, this is all so very hard. Well, I mean, if you want to try to explain that our one God is eternally subsisting in three divine persons, you're more than welcome to. All right, John, you win. This has been a production of the UCA Podcast. (laughs) All right. When the Trinity's Podcast returns, my analysis of the arguments that were implicit in that piece of comedy. One thing that's going on in the presentation we just heard is that Kane is pointing out that mainstream Christian tradition is painfully unclear about precisely what occurred relating to the God-man or the second person of the Trinity on Good Friday. Did God really die? Surely God is essentially immortal, so how could it be that God died? But the one person in the two-nature Christ is supposed to be not the human nature, but the divine nature, also known as the second person of the Trinity, or the Word of John 1, or the eternal divine Son. But if the eternal divine Son is divine, he'll have all the divine attributes, and that includes essential immortality. Does just his sloughing off a body and continuing on uninterrupted with his divine life, does that count as dying? It doesn't look like it should. Should we say that he's died, but that he's not dead? That doesn't seem right. Maybe sort of hedge our bets and just say that he tasted death or experienced death. Maybe that doesn't imply actually having died. So that's part of what he's pointing out. Whereas the New Testament just straightforwardly says that Jesus died and presents him as having died, having breathed his last, having given up his spirit, right? Those are just synonyms for dying. The tradition that has evolved just can't leave it at that. A human death is the death of a human person, but according to Catholic traditions, there isn't a human person here, but there is an eternal divine person who is, quote, human. So Cain is having a little bit of fun pointing that out, I think. But that's not what I think are the important arguments that are embodied in this piece of comedy. I think what's going on is something like this. He's inviting us to ask, what behavior would we expect to see in the apostles if they thought their leader, who was a man, had been killed? What we would expect to see is discouragement. Hey, we thought this guy was the Messiah. Isn't he supposed to rule over Israel? But now they've gone and killed him. 
this isn't working out like we hoped. On the other hand, what sort of behavior would we expect to see in the apostles if they thought that their leader, who was God in human form, had been killed? So on this view, God Almighty has been killed on the cross. Well, we would expect to see a lot of bafflement, you know, and wrestling with a mystery, that is to say, an apparent contradiction. It's an apparent contradiction that an essentially immortal being should die. So, maybe like later mainstream Christians, we would see them reaching out for equivocations like saying that he tasted death or experienced death or something like that. Or maybe it was just the human nature that died, or maybe it was just the body died, but not exactly him. These seem like reasonable presuppositions, don't they? And when you bring them to the New Testament, what you find is all indications are that the apostles were discouraged. And there isn't the slightest hint at their wondering how it could be that God Almighty could die. So this observation about the New Testament, specifically about their behavior as recorded there, favors the hypothesis that the New Testament authors thought that Jesus was a man, and seems to count against the hypothesis that the New Testament authors thought that Jesus was God in the flesh or a God-man or the second person of the eternal divine trinity, having mysteriously assumed a complete human nature. Which, by the way, is anhypostatic, that is to say, which isn't itself a person, precisely because of that mysterious union. So the general pattern of reasoning is, we're coming to the New Testament with two competing hypotheses. There's the Unitarian sort of understanding of the New Testament, and then there's the Trinitarian sort. And what we see in the New Testament is what we would expect to see if the authors were Unitarians, and it's quite other than what we would expect to see if they were Trinitarians. So I think that's one of the arguments he's giving us, and it's a powerful argument, and it's an argument which doesn't stand alone, as I'll explain later. Moving on, I find another argument in this presentation. It goes something like this. What would we expect the apostles and their companions to have written if they thought that the man Jesus had died? Well, we would find them referring to him as a man, period, with no extra qualifications. And we would find them just straightforwardly saying that he has died and depicting him as having died, like human beings do. On the other hand, What would we expect the apostles, or the circles around them, those who wrote the New Testament, to write if they thought that the God-man Jesus had died? So this eternal divine person who has assumed a complete human nature, body and soul. Well, we would expect some clarification about how this could be consistent with God being essentially immortal. We would expect some reflection on some special meaning for the word died. We know what it is for a human person to die, but the case of Jesus would not, on this hypothesis, involve a human person dying, but rather an eternal divine person who is called human because he is united to a complete human nature. This death, or whatever it is, would be kind of categorically different from, say, when Peter or Paul or John died. Okay, so with those two expectations in hand, keeping in mind these competing traditions of interpreting the New Testament, When we come to the texts, we find in the Gospels Jesus being depicted as a man and occasionally being referred to as a man, such as in John 8.40, 
And we find in the preaching and Acts, Jesus being referred to as a man. And everywhere the crucifixion comes up, it's just portrayed as or described as involving Jesus's death. That is what we would expect if the authors hold to a Unitarian type understanding of God and Jesus. On the other hand, when we approach the facts of the text with the God-man hypothesis, that these guys think that Jesus is God, or that he's both divine and human, he has a divine nature and a human nature, etc., we don't find them worrying the slightest bit about how it could be that God or an eternal divine person died, nor do we see any discussion of his death being different from, you know, the death of Abe Lincoln or your grandma. There isn't any of this fooling around with phrases like he tasted death or maybe he experienced death or he died in his human nature, whatever that might mean. It's just not there at all. So these facts about the New Testament, how they describe Jesus and how they portray his death, it's what we would expect if the authors look at God and Jesus in a Unitarian way. And it's not at all what we would expect if they look at God and Jesus in a Trinitarian way. And so these facts seem to favor the first hypothesis over the second. I think there's one more thrust of argument in the presentation. It goes something like this. What would we expect the authors of the New Testament to write if our hope as followers of Christ depends on our being raised back to life someday, just as God raised the man Jesus to eternal life? On the other hand, what would we expect them to write if our hope depends on the second person of the Trinity assuming a complete human nature and then taking it up again on the third day after separating from it, or at least separating from the body portion of that complete human nature. Again, what we actually see in the New Testament seems to strongly favor the first hypothesis over the second. It sounds like what they would have written if they thought that the Father is the one true God, the Father raised Jesus, he's the firstborn from the dead, the first of many brothers, and someday, just as God raised Jesus to immortality, he will raise us up to immortality, giving us everlasting life in the kingdom under him and his human Messiah. We don't find any talk about a second person of the Trinity assuming a complete human nature, something which would have happened presumably at the point at which Mary became pregnant. We don't read anything that even remotely sounds like the eternal divine son separating from the human nature, or at least separating from the body portion of the complete human nature, and then you know reuniting with it on the third day. So if you're willing to approach the New Testament asking, what would I expect to see there if these guys are Trinitarians? And again, what would I expect to see there if these authors are Unitarians? If you do that, then you'll find that many of the Trinitarian expectations are not met. And in contrast, all of the Unitarian expectations will be met. This type of argument is really just a kind of basic critical thinking. Just about anybody can engage in this type of reasoning. And as I'll explain after the break, this type of reasoning sidesteps some thought-preventing features of mainstream Catholic Christian traditions. When the Trinity's podcast returns, driving right around some roadblocks to simple critical thinking about the New Testament. 
In this last segment, I'm going to reflect on this style of argument and why I think it's so important for ordinary Christians to engage in this. As I pointed out back in podcast 302, the stages of Trinitarian commitment, the system as it stands depends on most Christians being in a low information state when it comes to, quote, the doctrine of the Trinity, and also they're being afraid to look into it. They're scared away from the topic by talk of eternal consequences and by the suggestion that, hey, you little layperson, you are just not qualified to delve into these deep mysteries. This is for the experts, okay? Whether it's seminarians or bishops. And there are some habits of thought which are not so much taught as modeled by leaders in mainstream Christianity, which prevent people from going through this simple sort of reasoning themselves. The first phenomenon is what I call the canon within the canon. So if the canon is the standard books of the Bible, more specifically the 27 universally accepted books in the New Testament, the canon within the canon is a small subset of those some specific verses and a few passages, which are thought to be very important to deducing the Trinity and Incarnation doctrines of mainstream Christianity. It includes things like John 1, Philippians 2, Colossians 1, John 8, 58, and a few passages in which Jesus is arguably referred to as God. If you just kind of stick to the canon within the canon, you can convince yourself very firmly that, hey, the Bible teaches that Jesus is God, but it also teaches that this other one is God, but there's only one God, and then there's this Holy Spirit. I'm not so sure about that. But anyway, look, uh, if there's two different ones that are God, God must be multipersonal. This has just got to be the Trinity, right? Yeah, maybe they didn't have the right language under their belt yet in the first century, but Anyway, it was all inevitable that this should turn out to be a doctrine of the Trinity, given that there are these two different persons, which are each God, and yet there's only one God. The problem with the canon within the canon is when you choose to focus on this small subset of traditional proof texts for these precious doctrines, you are thereby ignoring the context of the whole New Testament. You're not looking at the books as a whole, and you're not looking at the collection as a whole. When you do, the picture looks quite different. Because it is the whole books, and even the whole collection of books, which provide the context which is absolutely crucial for untangling the difficult passages. There are two related delusions that I call deductionism and grammaticism. Deductionism is the idea that traditional Catholic creedal teachings, like Trinity and Incarnation, can be pretty easily deduced from what the New Testament says. In other words, if you just consider this text, this text, and this text, altogether it rather obviously implies Trinity and Incarnation— Those things are not stated outright, no, but that's okay, they're not explicit. But, you know, an implicit doctrine can be just about as clear as an explicit doctrine. That's true, by the way. And they say, hey, there are these just obvious implications. If you'll just pay attention to them, you'll see that just Trinity and Incarnation are unavoidable. These are implicitly taught by the texts. What I call grammaticism is the idea that when you're talking about a passage whose meaning can be disputed, the dispute can be settled with some fairly simple grammatical or lexical points. Just point out that a certain word is used, 
or a certain phrase is used, and there you go. That necessitates a Trinitarian or Incarnationist understanding of that passage. I think that these habits of thought are modeled in lower quality classes in the seminary realm, but they're especially clearly seen in the traditions of popular apologetics and evangelicalism today. And what it leads to is the futile exercise of simply pointing out passages which are merely logically consistent with your theology, but those same passages are logically consistent with the rival theologies as well. Let me explain this by an example. In popular apologetics, very often it's pointed out that in a small handful of New Testament passages, Jesus is referred to using a form of the word theos, which we translate as God, capital G, or a God. How many times? Well, let's say between one and seven. Very few scholars now would argue for more than seven. Seven is the number fixated on in Murray Harris's monograph, Jesus as God, the New Testament use of theos in reference to Jesus. He examines more than a dozen potential passages where a form of the word God applies to Jesus, but he settles on seven as being probably or very probably or certainly about Jesus. Now, this fact surely is consistent with whatever it is that Trinitarianism is saying about God and Jesus. It's a long-established part of the tradition to refer to Jesus as God the Son or just as God, full stop. But it's just an obvious fallacy to infer that because it's consistent with my Trinitarian theology, therefore it's only consistent with my Trinitarian theology. No, that doesn't follow. In fact, Jesus being referred to as Theos a few times, say one to seven times in the New Testament, is easily seen to be logically compatible with any of the main families of Christian theology. So it's consistent, sure, with Trinitarian understandings. It's part of that tradition. But suppose that you were a oneness theologian. Is Jesus being referred to as God inconsistent with oneness theology? Of course it's not. They think that the Father is the one true God and that Jesus is the same as him. And so if you call God Theos, which of course you do, then you're going to call Jesus Theos, just like you call the Father Theos, because the one just is the other. So Jesus being called Theos is consistent with Trinitarian theology, but it's also just as obviously consistent with oneness Pentecostal theology. Okay, but what about the other options? There's what I call subordinationist Unitarianism, which is seen in some mainstream theologians writing in the first 300 years of Christianity, people like Tertullian and Origen and Novation, Irenaeus, Justin Martyr. They think that the one true God is the Father, but adhering to Logos theory, they think that there is this second and lesser God, which is referred to as the Word in John 1, and God created the world through or directly by the agency of this second and lesser God. So there's the one true God, which is the Father. That's why it's a Unitarian view. But also there's this lesser divine being, which was the divine element in Jesus. Now, if Jesus is called God a few times in the New Testament, is that inconsistent with this theology? Well, of course not. If the Son of God is a second and lesser God, then being a lesser God, you might refer to it as God. 
These theologians thought that the word God is equivocal between the one true God and this second lesser divine being, the Logos of John 1. So, Jesus being called Theos a few times in the New Testament is just as compatible with subordinationist Unitarian views about God and Jesus as it is with oneness or the later Trinitarian views. Okay, what about what's now called a biblical Unitarian view, or what was in ancient times called the dynamic monarchian understanding of God and Jesus? On this view, the one true God is the Father, and God's eternal word or wisdom, the Logos in John 1, came to be most fully expressed in the life of the man Jesus. Jesus on this view is human, but does not have a divine nature. He doesn't have all the divine attributes. Is this sort of theology consistent with Jesus being referred to as God a few times in the New Testament? Why, yes, it surely is. Because, as Jesus himself points out in John chapter 10, in Scripture, sometimes beings who are other than and lesser than the one true God can be referred to using the word God. And you seem to see this very thing in Hebrews 1, verses 8 and 9, quoting Psalm 45. So if an ancient king of Israel or an ancient judge could be addressed using the word God, maybe Thomas in John 20 is addressing Jesus using the word God. It's just that like the word Lord, the word God would be equivocal. It could be used of God, but it could also be used of the Son of God. That's all fully consistent with the biblical Unitarian understanding of God and Jesus in the New Testament. So the point is this. Observing that Jesus is called God a few times by itself does absolutely nothing at all to decide between these four theological rivals or these four different ways of understanding the New Testament testimony about God and Jesus. To think that this is somehow supporting your Trinitarian theology is strange and ignorant. It seems to reflect just a lack of knowledge about what the rivals are. Because, again, the observation is just as consistent with them as it is with a Trinitarian understanding of the New Testament. Again, this is an example of merely citing some passages which are consistent with your theology, but which don't at all require your theology, and then sort of spiking the ball and thinking that you've proven your point. All you have done is perfectly useless proof texting. You've done absolutely nothing to persuade anybody who's not already committed. And if you actually talk to people who hold rival views, they will be happy to tell you this. Of course, so much of today's apologetics is just continually preaching to the choir, so they very often are not engaging with people who hold rival views. They're just sort of sticking with a very friendly crowd and kind of telling that crowd what they want to hear. But again, logically, if a fact is just as consistent with the rival views as with your own, then pointing out that fact, if that's all you're pointing out then you've in fact done nothing to support your view of the text versus the rival ones. Okay, but we can pick our facts more carefully. And we can find some facts about the New Testament or about Christian history, which do do something to decide between these theological rivals. So here, the fact is not that Jesus is allegedly referred to as God maybe up to seven times in the New Testament, But rather, let's look at the whole New Testament pattern of how the word theos is used. 
It's used more than 1,300 times, and it's nearly always the Father. Maybe as many as seven times it refers to Jesus. Maybe one or two times it refers to the Holy Spirit. One might think as a person in contrast to the Father and to Jesus. Very debatable, by the way. Okay, but just look at the big pattern. The overwhelming use, 99 plus percent of the time, this word is reserved for the Father. Possibly it's never used for the Son, but maybe it's used up to seven times. Okay, but we also know that the word theos can be used in a lesser sense. We know this according to both Old and New Testaments. Okay, now considering this overall New Testament pattern of how the word theos is used, how does this relate to the four options I just went through? Well, if there are three equally divine persons of the Trinity, each of them equally well God, then it's very surprising. It's part of Jewish tradition to mostly reserve the word God for the one true God. If the Son is the one true God just as much as the Father, you would expect them to be spreading the word around between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Not necessarily equally, but you'd expect to see them spreading it around a lot more than you actually see in the New Testament. And so, this observation is very surprising if the authors are Trinitarians. Just as well, it's surprising if the authors hold to a oneness theology, where basically the Father and Son are the same person. If the Son is just as much God as the Father, why would they almost completely reserve use of the word God for talking about the Father? I don't know, it's very surprising. Okay, what about a subordinationist Unitarian view like we see in Origen, the great 3rd century mainstream Christian scholar? I would say it's a little bit surprising on his view. If this second lesser divine being really is divine, you'd expect to see it being called a god, or maybe just god, fairly often, but in fact, you almost never see that. So there's a lot less surprise here, because the one god on his view is the Father, and it's the Father who is almost always more than 99% of the time meant when they use the word theos in the New Testament. But you'd expect to see it used a little more if there really is a divine son, Granted, less divine, but still in some sense divine, and such as has always existed, having been eternally generated from God. So it's a little bit surprising that you'd see this pattern if the authors hold to a subordinationist, Unitarian understanding of God and Jesus. Now, what if we imagine that these authors hold to a biblical Unitarian understanding of God and Jesus? So the Father is the one true God, and no one else is. Jesus is a very special man, miraculously conceived, called by God to this unique ministry as his Christ or Messiah, now raised and exalted to God's right hand. Is this pattern of the New Testament use of theos surprising if the authors thought this? Is it surprising that more than 99% of the time theos would refer to the Father and maybe as many as seven times it refers to the Son? The answer is, no, this isn't surprising at all. If they think the one true God is the Father alone, we would expect them, being Jews, to reserve the word God mostly for Him. Now be careful to understand what I'm saying. This observation about the overall pattern of how the word theos is used in the New Testament It is, I am agreeing, logically consistent with 
all four of those approaches to the New Testament. Trinitarian, oneness, subordinationist, Unitarian, or biblical Unitarian. It's logically consistent with all of those. However, it's something which is very surprising if the authors are Trinitarian or oneness. It's a little bit surprising if they're subordinationist Unitarians. And it's not surprising at all if they're biblical Unitarians. And so, this observation seems to favor the biblical Unitarian understanding of these authors versus the others. It favors the biblical Unitarian interpretation a little bit over the subordinationist Unitarian rival, and it supports the biblical Unitarian understanding a lot over the oneness and Trinitarian rivals. Now, that's not the end of the argument, because there's lots of other evidence to consider. There are many other observations to consider about what is and what is not in the New Testament. And there are relevant observations about what did and what did not occur in Christian history. Here's the thing. There are many facts like this one, facts about history or about the text of the New Testament, which are not surprising given the biblical Unitarian understanding and which are surprising either a little bit or a lot given the rivals. And so it looks like there's a big constellation of facts which support looking at the New Testament in this way. And let me tell you, friend, once you really embrace this sort of reasoning, it's really game over for the Trinity or oneness traditions of looking at the New Testament. You just can't continue to project either one of those paradigms onto these texts. What are these other facts? Well, I'm glad you asked. My most complete discussion of such facts is in podcast 189 called The Unfinished Business of the Reformation. This was a talk I gave at an academic conference in Germany, and it ended up being a published book chapter published in Germany, which you can read on my academia.edu page. And I'll put the links for these on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. I think that, if I remember right, I was turned on to this sort of reasoning by what I present in podcast 191 called Ware's Outline of the Testimony of Scripture Against the Trinity. This is a former Harvard professor and even a Harvard president giving his summary of how the Christian scriptures fit a Unitarian understanding of God and Jesus and how they at the same time seem to misfit a Trinitarian understanding of them. I also give a shorter version of this as my opening statement in podcast 249, my debate with Michael Brown, so you can check that out. I know that some of you out there listening have started to see the appeal of a Unitarian understanding of God and Jesus in the New Testament. You have started to see how it looks like in some cases there is a natural fit between Unitarian Christian views and what we find in the New Testament, and yet you can't get over the canon within the canon. You're still clinging to a few traditional proof texts. You know, how can you guys make sense of that? We got John 1, we got Philippians 2. Don't those really require that Jesus is fully divine, that he's God just as much as the Father? Don't they sort of imply that there is a multi-personal God? Well, no, I don't think they do. And I think, and I think Unitarian Christians do need to give a good and reasonable answer to all of the favorite Trinitarian proof texts. But here's the thing. Those are difficult-to-interpret texts. And yet, once you embrace the sort of reasoning that I've been describing in this episode, 
even before you're quite sure what to make of all those texts, you can decide what the whole New Testament picture is. You can do it with this simple form of reasoning as embodied in this hilarious little under 10-minute puppet show, but also expounded in longer, more serious sources. Again, I know that some of you are starting to see the appeal of a Unitarian Christian understanding of the New Testament, but you're still holding on to the canon within the canon. And also, just as importantly, you're acutely aware of the social price a person may have to pay for becoming a Unitarian Christian. My friend, the choice is up to you. Will you take the red pill and undergo a paradigm shift in how you look at the New Testament? Or will you again turn away? Will fear cause you to choose the blue pill instead so that you continue in your Trinitarian slumbers? My advice is to set aside the fear, to trust in God, and to trust in Jesus to take care of you should the consequences turn out badly. And having done that, look at the whole New Testament with open eyes, even those facts which would be very surprising if the authors are Trinitarians or Oneness theologians, but which are not surprising if they're some sort of Unitarians. When we have that information, we're responsible to act on it, and we'll be held accountable for what we do with it. I'm not done with this sort of argument. In an upcoming podcast called Who Do You Say I Am? I really drive home this sort of argument when it comes to who Jesus is according to the New Testament. So stay tuned for that. There will also be a video version of that presentation at the 21st Century Reformation online website. This week's thinking music has been the track Poor Man's Groove by Mr. Smith. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinities podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook and help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinities podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinities podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.